At Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently. By using more sustainable practices. By developing better technologies. We keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com slash purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate megastores led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill. It's the Barbell Medicine Podcast, where we bring modern medicine to strength and conditioning and strength and conditioning to modern medicine. I'm your host, Dr. Jordan Feigenbaum. This week on episode 220 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast, we're going to answer your questions from the internet. Dr. Baraki and I asked you for questions and you did not disappoint with questions ranging from what our biggest regrets are in training to whether or not zone two cardio is worth all the hype to the downsides of performance enhancing drugs. This is an episode with something for everyone. This podcast is brought to you by Pioneer Belts, trusted by some of the world's strongest athletes. Choose Pioneer for your weightlifting belts and accessories. Pioneer has belts to fit your needs, whether it's a 13mm thick, 4-inch wide belt for powerlifting like me, a Velcro hybrid belt for CrossFit, and everything in between. They'll also custom make belts to your specifications. I bought and paid for a new belt from them last year and been very impressed with both the performance and quality. All products are made in the USA. Check them out at generalleathercraft.com and support those who support us. This podcast is also brought to you by Bells of Steel, maker of high-quality exercise equipment that won't break the bank. Established in 2010 and located in Indianapolis, Indiana, Bells of Steel's mission is to help you get stronger, healthier, and more muscle for your hard-earned dollar. Bells of Steel has a ton of cool products for outfitting your home gym, including calibrated iron plates, air bikes, belt squat machines, racks, and much, much more. If for whatever reason you don't love your new equipment, Bells of Steel offers a 30-day money-back guarantee to return your order, and they'll even pay the shipping back. Check them out at bellsofsteel.us and use the code BBM23 to get 10% off selected items. This podcast is also brought to you by Viore. Viore makes super high quality, versatile clothing for inside and outside the gym for both men and women. I'm absolutely in love with their fleet pants and core shorts. If you know me, you know I'm pretty picky about the stuff I train in, and both of these items are super comfortable and super durable with the type of training that I do. I've also been wearing their Rise Tee in and outside of the gym, which fits better than more expensive shirts I've tried before. Viore also sources sustainable materials for their products and offsets their carbon footprint 100%. Head over to their website, viore.com backslash barbell, to get 20% off your first order. All right, we're here with the second most handsome doctor in North America, Dr. Austin Baraki. What's going on, man? Hey, man. I'm doing all right. Finally catching a break from work. And uh, I guess we're tackling some questions. You said that people didn't disappoint. I mean, some people might have disappointed a little bit, but overall, we did okay. <laughs> yeah. I mean, I, I know it, it, when we open up the questions, like I do, a, I do the ask me anything like yeah. fairly often. And then you post on Instagram once every six months, just yeah, out, yeah. come out of hiding. <laughs> I think people are so excited that you were back that, you know, they they just started firing questions without like <laughs> enough meat in the question sometimes to make them answerable. I, I try my best because I, I did think some of the questions had good intentions. And so if I could of shape course. them in a way yeah. to make them 
or at least to get get a good rant going or something like that. These are uh, there's going to be some rants. I can <laughs> I can feel it. Uh, but yeah, before we get into that, we have new content over on the website. New articles of uh, how to train for power in the rehab setting. We got liver function tests, headaches, and exercise. The belt articles coming out soon. We got a new YouTube video. I was mic'd up again for a lower body workout, which surprisingly went better than I thought. Not because I enjoy wearing the mic, but I just thought the noises that would be emanating from my body cavity during heavy deadlifts or 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 leg press or or whatever would just be embarrassing. But yeah, the, either the mic's not sensitive to like pick pick it up, or uh, I just don't do that. So that was impressive. Uh, I go on a, a few old man rants about the music. And uh, the fetish, fetishization of the hip thrust. Um, so, you know, if you're interested in that, check that out on the YouTube channel. It's linked in the description below. Also, we have seminars. All of these seminars are now live in our store on the website. We'll be in Brooklyn here in about a month's time. So if you're on the East Coast, want to go to one of our two-day live in-person seminars for health and performance uh, that Dr. Baraki and I host, that's uh, in Brooklyn in May. We will also be in, at Untamed Strength in Sacramento, California in October, and we'll be in Sydney, Australia in January. Those are all two-day health and performance seminars. We talk about the intersection between health and training, uh, medicine and training. And then we also have two brand new pain and rehab seminars. Uh, one is in Bozeman, Montana. The other one is in Los Angeles and that'll be in September. The one in Bozeman is in June. All of that is available, uh, for you guys to peruse on our website linked in the description as well. And finally, we got new, the new merchandise up on the store, our university line. Did I send you any of that stuff, Austin? I think the like gray and red university tea. You sent me one of those. So those are, yeah. Are they, wait, what's William and Mary's, uh, what are, they, are their colors? Green and gold. Doesn't, that doesn't work. Okay. Well, <laughs> I was where so the San Diego, uh, San Diego State University, Aztecs, I, I, I know you didn't watch any of the NCAA tournament, but they just, you know, went down to UConn. It was a Cinderella story though. Oh, upset number one, Alabama in the elite eight, whatever. Like I, I I'll be honest. I didn't watch the game, but I did wear a black and uh, uh, that colorway shirt to the gym, which is it's similar to their colors. And people were like, yeah, go SDSU. And I'm like, it's actually barbell medicine. But <laughs> <laughs> so I was I was uh, showing out for the for the home team. But yeah, that stuff is selling out quickly. So it'll be around for a little while longer. And then once it's gone, it's gone. So check that out uh, over the website again, linked in the description below. But uh, yeah, let's not waste too much time. Let's get in some of these questions i separate them by like are these training related questions are these medicine related questions or are these personal and we'll dim the lights turn up the teddy pendergrass when we answer these personal questions (laughs) all right so for training question number one will grip strength still increase while regularly using wraps i think they mean straps yeah probably straps or is it best not to use them too often? So just quickly, the, if you know, you're know you like, straps, wraps, what's the deal? <laughs> what's the deal with straps? I feel like Jerry Seinfeld is saying that. Uh, so wrist wraps, would they basically form like a soft cast around your wrist, which can be useful if you have uh, wrist discomfort when you're lifting. Most commonly, they're used during like pressing exercises. Uh, but some people wear them like during deadlifts and squats. We've, we've done that from time to time. Wrist wraps uh straps which is what we'll talk about now actually is like a grip aid these are usually either made from leather or uh do you think it's like a nylon polymer type thing that we use now the iron mind straps you think it's nylon i think so i mean it's kind of like a 
I don't know. Sometimes it feels like a thicker version of like seatbelt type material. <laughs> yeah, it's some sort of web, some sort of webbed material. I just don't know if it's yeah. nylon or whatever, but it's yeah. not leather. Uh, I've used leather straps before, but and they exist, but uh, other ones are made out of some sort of webbed material and they go around the barbell. And so rather than you having to hold the bar with just pure grip strength, you're effectively creating um, friction between your hand and the the strap that wraps around the bar. So it's easier to hold the weight. So Austin, in your opinion, if someone's using wrist straps, is their grip strength likely to improve? I think that this is um, something that probably varies based on the person's level of training advancement and, and where they're at. Like if you have a, say, say you're a complete beginner and it's like your first time training and then you start to lift and you use straps like from day one, I would expect that you're still going to experience some improvement relative to the untrained state, because again, just like holding on to anything is probably going to improve things. But the further along you get, um, to the extent that top, you know your measure of grip strength involves being able to independently hold extremely heavy loads, then I think that that kind of carryover is likely to to trail off after some point. So I feel like for us, for example, if we were to train 100% of the time with straps for like a year. And then we went to pull a new one rep max. We might have, I would expect that we might have some difficulty with that compared with if we had been regularly exposing ourselves to trying to, you know, uh, uh, pull some singles in training and, and, and some potentially some rep sets uh, without the use of straps. Um, and so I think it does kind of depend on that to, to some extent. Yeah. And so I, the way I view it, there's multiple types of grip strength, right? It's just like any other strength test. There are different ways to measure it. Most of the time, grip strength is measured via like this handheld dynamometer that you squeeze really hard. And then it just pumps out a number like, oh, this you applied X amount of force in this way. But that's not the only way to demonstrate grip strength. There, You can pinch things together. You can try to crush things together, like the Captains of Crush stuff from Iron Mind. Um, and you know, in general, like hand surgeons, hand specialists will talk about like a precision grip and a power grip. There's all sorts of different things you can do with your hands to, again, apply force to an implement. Um, and so it would be very unusual, I think, if someone used straps during exercises where you could use straps for. So like deadlifts, rows, pull downs, like mostly uh, those types of exercises that they still wouldn't get any stimulus on like a compression power grip where you're really trying to squeeze the crap out of the bar, like in a bench press uh, or any variety thereof or overhead press or any variety thereof, uh, or even to a lesser extent, you know, squats, you still got to grab the bar on some level. If you use a thumbless grip, yeah, sure. It's less pressure that you're putting into the bar, um, less demands on your grip than like a heavy deadlift, but it's, it's not nothing. So I don't, I mean, I think if you fully wanted to develop your grip to the highest level, you wouldn't use straps a hundred percent of the time, but it would be very unlikely to not have any improvement in grip strength with using straps. And, and really straps are just another tool to use, right? Like I use them particularly on multi-rep, higher rep sets for deadlifts and rows, not because my grip is the limiting factor there. Cause it's not, it's just because at with that many reps and particularly if i'm doing a good amount of volume my hands get beat up and if my hands get beat up like i rip a callus or you know rip one of my my digits open i can't really train then uh without <laughs> without straps and so to avoid that problem to avoid bleeding all over the place i'll use i'll use straps on uh high higher repetition sets for those types of exercises yeah i think that the pointing out that like the test matters here is is really important there was kind of an assumption baked in that like this person trains with barbells and that's what they're trying to get better at holding on to but if somebody just came up to me and said 
I want to develop my grip strength to the maximum ability. Well, the first question is, what is the test? And and for most people, that generic question is not usually like to hold the heaviest one rep max deadlift with a, you know, a, a, a regular size barbell. And so it's like, if somebody said they wanted the absolute most well-developed top end uh, grip strength. I don't know that barbells would be a prominent feature of that person's training at all. <laughs> yeah, really. yeah. They, um, so yeah. yeah, they may do some barbell training, but they'd also probably do hangs, you know, maybe have a fingerboard involved in there. They do some compression stuff like captains of crush. They do some fat grip training. All of that stuff is true to like, again, build this big base of grip strength, so to speak, and then apply that specifically towards a test or series of tests. On the other hand, though, if you're trying to just build grip strength for the deadlift, I don't know that those other things really transfer that right. well. I've never Especially, done any of those things. <laughs> same, same. Yeah. And if I have somebody who's got a problem holding on to a deadlift, uh, I think working the deadlift is probably the most time efficient way to improve their grip strength. People are like, well, what about farmer's walks? And I'm like, well, it's a slightly different demand. You're not going to be usually carrying more or anywhere close to your max deadlift. And the dynamic nature of that movement kind of uh limits the transference it's not nothing it's you know it's still you're still holding on to something and moving around with it but it's not you you could also just deadlift yep okay question number two how do you select loads on the big lifts during a rehab period just work up until you feel some discomfort yeah no i think instead of actually working up until you feel discomfort you just go beyond that just send it <laughs> that way, you know, for sh- no, I'm just kidding. Uh, <laughs> all right. So let me get, let's give a scenario here to make this more applicable. Let's say it's one of those times you're, you know, you got a back tweak or whatever, low back tweak, non-specific, And you're like, all right, I'm supposed to squat today. How do you approach that workout in general? You're, you're aware that your back does not feel good. <laughs> well, how do you start your workout? And you'll say you got squats on the menu. What do you do? Yeah. So I might approach, uh, either starting out with just body weight or with the empty bar, I might warm up just with it a tiny bit more than I usually would to see if it improves as I go, or if it doesn't, cause that's going to kind of impact part of my decision-making. And then generally I'm going to move more slowly, uh, than I would otherwise. So use some, some tempo. And so to the extent that the discomfort improves or dissipates with movement activity warming up. That's something that is reassuring and is going to make me feel better about incrementally increasing the load. On the other hand, if um, either with you know the empty bar or if I reach some load and at that load, the, the, the discomfort is actually getting worse over the course of the set or feels much worse after the set, then I'm probably either at my threshold for the day or I'm past it. Um, so in general, either kind of like stable symptoms or improving symptoms is, is reassuring and I'll take smaller jumps than I otherwise would. I'm probably using higher reps than I otherwise would and I'm probably using some tempo um, in that first session because this is like the common theme when we talk about rehab and this is applicable to overwhelming majority of rehab scenarios is we're trying to find what we call the entry point. What is the uh, load and dosage of activity um, that you can do on that day that does that is tolerable, that does not flare things up, and that can kind of help you to get things snowballing in a positive direction to build some momentum from there. The overwhelming most common mistake people make is not backing off enough, whether in intensity or overall volume or refusing to change the exercise when their primary movement that they want to do is just way too sensitive uh, for them. And so sometimes that can be a process. People are just digging in their heels, uh, afraid to take weight off the bar and feel like they're backsliding. And ultimately that leads the process to take a lot longer than it would otherwise. So if I'm going in with a tweak, then I might be 
tempo squatting the empty bar for sets of like eight to 12, sometimes even 15 or something for a set or two, sometimes even more. And then I'll just do much smaller jumps than I otherwise would. So I'm not going to go from the bar to 135 or the bar to 70 kilos or something like that. I might literally go, you know, put tens on either side or put, you know, uh, uh, 20 pounds on either side um, to see how that first initial jump goes. Because again, I want to maximize the likelihood that I'm staying under that threshold to find my entry point instead of risking overshooting and bigger jumps are going to risk overshooting. Um, so that first session, that's what I'm trying to find. And then in subsequent sessions from there, which are ideally on kind of non-consecutive days later in, in the week, um, I can I can use that as my entry point and kind of try to build a little bit from there, relatively small increments. And then as things improve, I can make my jumps back to normal. I can move my tempo back to normal. I can drop my reps back down and kind of get back towards normal training. Yeah, I think that that pretty much encapsulated the the response. And just to highlight, it's like you have a what we call a normal, like unrestricted workout. Maybe that's like multiple sets of four to six reps at RPE, you know, seven to eight or, or you know, you have a top single scheduled. Well, if, if I'm going into that workout under the impression that I am injured at the time. And so I'm all right. I've accepted like this is I, I need to go through a rehab process. I do not know the length you know, that it's going to be, but I know that this particular workout as it's written is unsuitable for my current condition. So yes, I'm already expecting, yeah, the rep scheme is going to change. I'm no longer going to be tied or anchored to this four to six rep range. For example, I'm thinking more like 10 to 15 reps. I'm also no longer tethered to a normal tempo. Uh, that may be the case by the end of my warm up. I'm like, no, oh, I could actually move at a normal tempo with these lighter loads that I have forced myself to use because the rep scheme uh, has increased. And then I'm also dropping the RPE down uh, quite a bit just to, again, make sure, ensure that the weight is light enough. The only other thing I would add in here is that the only change in my warm up may be some like direct desensitization work at that time. So uh, for example, when I did my adductor at that meet, the next day I went to the gym, but before I squatted, I did some modified Copenhagen planks just to like, all right, I need to like expose the adductor to something. I need to convince myself that I'm not, <laughs> I'm not going to die. And that particular workout, I only squatted the empty barbell the day before the day before I had 640 on the bar. Okay. And that particular workout, I only squatted the barbell. And then when I went to deadlift a few days after that, I started with just the empty barbell. And then my first jump, instead of it to 70 kilos, it was to 40 kilos. And then I did 60 kilos. And I would never in my, you know, in a normal circumstance do that. But again, tempo work, higher rep scheme, and some desensitization work right at the beginning. The cool thing is when you start out like that and you're kind of like, uh, you know, are more conservative, it's just that you rarely take steps back like that. And so the overall process ends up being shorter. You can progress faster and you don't have to kind of go back to square one over and over and over again because you didn't start conservative enough. And I think, yeah, I would agree with you. That's probably the biggest. Yeah, I mean, we've both, we've both been there too. I mean, it happens to all of us. Um, it's something that you just kind of have to accept. And each time you go through this process over the course of a whole training career, you learn something and hopefully you can be smarter in the future. <laughs> Ideally. Yeah, learn something. Okay, next question. How to address fainting while doing deadlifts or any other exercise? You ever uh, you ever fainted after a deadlift? Uh, no, I've only passed out during an overhead press. Um, yeah, same. That was it. I, I've become very, very lightheaded after a deadlift where I had to take a knee. But the overhead press uh, was, that's the only one where I've been like, I think I was out, like out, out. Um, 
Yeah. So I don't know if this would technically be like a vasovagal or, you know, whatever is going on. There's been some documentation in the literature of like weightlifters doing this. And it's like, oh, the bar or whatever. And the combination with the Valsalva is compromising blood flow and cerebral perfusion pressure to the brain. And so then the body's response is to just go out. Uh, I think the most actionable thing here is people are not only like hyperventilating before they either go to lift or unrack the weight or whatever. So they're, <sighs> yeah, I don't know if you guys can hear that. You're, they're breathing very, very quickly, like kind of getting their blood pH off just a tick <laughs> a little bit. And then they're also holding their breath for an extended period of time, which is just not compatible with, with, you know, really continuing to be conscious. So, um, as far as cues and actionable things to do, don't, if you're psyching yourself up, that's cool, but you don't need to like rapidly breathe beforehand to, to do that. And then also like holding your breath for an extended, extended, extended period of time, like a 10 second Valsalva is probably overkill, uh, for most of these, uh, repetition efforts that we're trying to do. Uh, what else, what else would you think about Austin? Well, yeah, I think that hearing the question as stated, with fainting with exercise, I have to put my doctor hat on there for a go. second. Um, <laughs> fainting in general, uh, the medical term being syncope, relates to when there is, for whatever reason, a brief decrease in blood flow to the brain, a drop in blood pressure to get enough blood into the brain. And that can happen either due to a decrease in how much blood your heart is able to pump out, so a decrease in cardiac output, um, or a decrease in the vascular resistance. In other words, a decrease in how much your blood vessels are, are squeezing down. And then when it comes to how much blood your heart is able to pump out, that has to do with the actual structure, mechanics, the ability of the pump to do its job, and then how much actual blood volume there is for it to pump out. And so this is kind of like a the kind of physiology breakdown that I would go through with my learners when we're seeing somebody with, you know, syncope in the, in the ER or something like that. So we have, you know, cardiogenic syncope that could be related to various kinds of structural problems with the heart or other things going on. There could be volume issues. So somebody is, you know, what most people term dehydrated, even though that's not technically correct, but hypovolemia. So, you know, if somebody's had, you know, say, say a bunch of blood loss, somebody's at, you know, having tons and tons and tons of blood loss from a menstrual period or something like that, that can impact, you know, their, their blood pressure and things like that, or they're very dehydrated from inadequate oral intake all day, or they're having a diarrheal illness or whatever the case is. Um, and then other neurological issues um, that can impact the tone of our blood vessels, how much the blood vessels are squeezing down. And there's various either medications that can impact that, medical conditions that can impact that, and then other situational things that can lead people's blood pressure to drop. And that's what you mentioned is like vasovagal when people pass out with needles and, 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 and other kinds of, you know, intense uh, experiences like that. So again, the vast majority of people who um, are experiencing this in our audience likely to include the person who's asking this question are not experiencing any of these like serious medical mm -hmm. kind of issues. But I have to mention that like for if, if I have a history of somebody who is passing out with exercise, I am automatically taking that seriously because there are some potentially dangerous things um, that can cause that. Uh, however, if it's like, you know, in my case, it happened, I think uh, it I've, I've gotten like kind of fuzzy vision uh, a couple times with an overhead press and then passed out once with an overhead press. It's only been that movement. It's that was very isolated episodes, never in any other context have I ever had any symptoms similar to that. And of course, I am capable of like thinking about this myself with the medical training. I don't expect people to be able to do their own analysis on themselves. So if you're concerned, like talk to a doctor about that. 
you know, best case scenario, they tell you, I don't think anything's wrong with you. Stop doing that. And then you can choose whether you want to listen to them or more <laughs> likely not listen to them um, or, or ensure your safety. So I was lucky that when I was, I was overhead pressing 225, I think, and I was lucky that I had the safeties set. I was actually pressing inside my rack um, and I had the safeties set higher than I did normally. And so it came down on the safeties and then I was able to fall down below it safely. Yeah. Um, but yeah, I think it's, it's just important that any passing out with exercise is going to you know get a doctor's attention uh but you know most of the time it's not something serious but because it potentially can be then then you know we at least have to think about some of those things yeah i like that all right next question is there any evidence supporting the use of alpha gpc so just for the listeners at home alpha gpc is alpha glycerophosphocholine it's a dietary supplement um it gets metabolized into a few different things choline and glycerol one phosphate it's a precursor of acetylcholine which is a neurotransmitter um and this is of primary interest to like the nootropic sort of scene so cognitive enhancement purposes and when people frame a question like is there any evidence supporting the use of x I think what they're really asking is like, on balance, the totality of the evidence that you are aware of in humans, does this suggest there's a positive signal in improving something I care about? It, because that's how I interpret the question. In general, you can find supporting evidence through either a mechanism or a particular study design that shows, hey, this thing may be of interest. But what you really want to see is robust, repeated, reliable signals in humans that changes something that you care about. Uh, so in excess of, in excess of the downsides as well. Yeah, exactly. And is otherwise <laughs> safe for sure. So with respect to cognitive enhancement purposes, there are a number of rat studies, rodent studies, but really nothing in humans that shows any reliable benefit in cognitive performance in healthy individuals. There's a scant bit of data in the Alzheimer's population. Uh, unfortunately, most of those studies and there's not that many, but the most of them are on some sort of mechanism rather than like actual clinical outcome. Like, do these people have a higher quality of life? Are they better at recall tasks? Things of that nature, which even then you're like, okay, so better on this recall, but like, how are they day to day, you know, whatever. And so I don't, even if there is an improvement in like memory on a particular test, it's like, well, how does that translate? Does it make a difference in this person's quality of life? And if not, eh. I'm not. Yeah, we know that we, we have evidence from, you know, actual pharmacologic, you know, drugs that are used to treat Alzheimer's disease, for example, that increase cholinergic signaling, that increase the signaling of acetylcholine, that they don't do very much. Most yeah. patients don't get a significant benefit from it. And so, you know, the mechanism here would be, hey, we're giving a precursor to acetylcholine, maybe that boosts acetylcholine signaling. That's what helps with cognition in the brain. It's like, well, it doesn't really seem to, you know, help that much when we boost it by this other mechanism. Um, if there's a similarly modest benefit uh, through this mechanism, then I'd say, okay, you know, uh, but it's not something that I would... Uh, if it is that trivial of a benefit in people with significant cognitive impairment, I don't know that I would expect you to have just massive cognitive powers unleashed in the absence of dementia either. <laughs> so, right. Sure. <laughs> and then for, for athletic performance, there's a few studies. One is on like vertical jump. Another one's on like bench press. And then there's a few isometric studies where they're doing like either isometric like leg extensions or like hand grip tests or whatever. And there's some pretty Interesting is the wrong word. We'll just say like curious data. So like vertical jump, for example, there's no data showing it increases people's like vertical jump performance, but it's like vertical jump power. So it's some sort of like impulse and it's some trivial amount 
of increase that doesn't demonstrably actually increase vertical jump. And if I asked a thousand people on the street, hey, do you want to increase your vertical jump? Most of them would say, hey, that sounds like something I'm interested in. I'm like, yeah, can't do that, but I can increase your vertical jump power. And you're like, I don't know what that is. And I go, yeah, yeah, well, the <laughs> best I can do. Uh, same same thing on like a, when the, a bench press performance. It's like increases like peak power production, but not bar velocity, not the amount of weight that people can lift, not the amount of repetitions they get before you know failure. Uh, and then the isometric studies, which are like the least skill required meant of like force production are all over the place some improvements some no change uh yeah and so it taking that to me is like the totality of the evidence and then if you also consider that in general dietary supplements there's a about a 20 percent, which is likely underreported rate of contamination having things in there that you don't want in there and a almost 60 percent again underreported uh rate of mislabeling either the dose is wrong or the label doesn't contain everything that's in there or, or some combination thereof and this particular type of supplement is uh, what i would consider a higher risk supplement for contamination or mislabeling that would also include things like testosterone boosters sexual performance you know improving uh supplements things of that those things are all just prime to <laughs> actually contain some sort of either illicit substance or thing that you don't you don't otherwise want this is not a supplement that i would recommend despite it making the rounds in nootropic circles or like biohacker circles and i'm just like look if there's impressive evidence to that ends up coming down the pike and you can get it from a reliable supplement manufacturer that's cgmp certified third-party tested this that, and the other and we have known like pharmacokinetic data and dosing and stuff like that i will happily retract any negative thing i've said about it and change you know change my tune but we just don't have that yet and so because of those things i can't really recommend this as like a yeah this is definitely something we should be taking any anything you want to add to that yeah, there's some interesting kind of related physiology here, I guess, that acetylcholine is also used in kind of neuromuscular signaling, not just in cognitive, you know, processes, but, you know, the ways that our nerves trigger our muscles to contract is through acetylcholine signaling. And so there are various diseases where people have impairments in that neuromuscular signaling, like myasthenia gravis, for example, and we put patients on medications like peridostigmine, which actually increases cholinergic signaling. And so that kind of piqued my interest just now in the background. I was looking up like evidence on the use of peridostigmine in sports performance and things like that. And <laughs> there's not like a ton directly on sports, performance, but there's some in like, you know, it looks like rats who had had heart attacks and other kinds of patients with fibromyalgia and some other interesting stuff. I might have to dig into this just out of interest. That's not a drug that I would want to take uh, if I did not have <laughs> myasthenia gravis for various reasons, the effects of uh, uh, kind of boosting cholinergic signaling in general. There are some unpleasant things that can come along with that. Um, but that was just an interesting thought that came about with thinking about uh, other ways to boost this kind of cholinergic signaling is putting on people on cholinesterase inhibitors, similar to ultimately potentially similar mechanism to taking, you know, a precursor to, to choline, to acetylcholine. Anyway, yeah. nerding out. It's all good. There you go. <laughs> all right. Next question. Is resistance training superior to endurance training regarding overall health benefits? I feel like this may be rant inducing. Austin, you got a you got a hot take on this? This is just such a broad, broad question. And I don't think that I can confidently give an answer. I, I would just say no up 
front is that I don't think it's superior, but I think that again, the question is just so broad as to make it difficult to like confidently answer on that level. Do you, do you have a, do you have a hot take? <laughs> well, well, no, I'm going to, what I'm going to do is answer it indirectly and have it okay. pose as an actual answer. So, okay. <laughs> so when it, when it comes to people actually participating in regular physical activity, the, the bar is very low. We've done a, a few podcasts on this where we drop this. It, it looks like if you, poll everybody and ask, you know, adults in America, for example, and ask them, hey, how many of you are meeting the physical activity guidelines? Here they are for aerobic conditioning or just conditioning in general. About half of people will say, yep, we're doing it. And then if you additionally layer on like, and how many of you are at least lifting weights twice per week? Well, that number drops to about 17% or so. Uh, And so I think more people are likely meeting the physical activity guidelines from a conditioning perspective than they are from a resistance training perspective. And so if you were trying to like, if you could only run one public health campaign for a physical activity promotion, and it had to be either just conditioning or just resistance training, we're making all these you know, <laughs> arbitrary dichotomies up. I, sure, I could make a case that resistance training promotion would likely be uh, beneficial. I think if you had to do one or the other, man, it, it's not like you're not getting any strength benefit from engaging in conditioning, right? You're getting some stimulus to the muscles, not only for their function, but also muscle mass. So that's going to be beneficial, just like you're getting some conditioning stimulus from resistance training, in addition to a whole other bevy of, you know, potentially health, uh, beneficial health adaptations. I just think I wouldn't choose one or the other. I would do both. Uh, but again, gun to head, if like you forced me to answer, I would say, in the younger population in like conditioning training probably has a bigger effect on your risk up until i don't know your sixth or seventh decade of life and then at after that point it's probably more resistance training would likely see a bigger signal just from like function quality of life muscle mass sarcopenia avoidance you know all that sort of stuff i'm not confident in that take but that's kind of how i would think about it yeah I, i i i think i might nudge back a tiny bit there in the sense that, you know, I I can see lifters who are, you know, firmly in the lifting camp and who might hear about us talk about muscle mass and sarcopenia and things like that have the impression that like, I have to do all this resistance training um, because if I did just all conditioning instead, like the idea that if you were just a conditioning athlete that you're going to get sarcopenia, no, no. No. That's not going to happen. And, and, and the reason, and I need to qualify this because the, the, the diagnosis or like the criteria of sarcopenia is not purely a matter of muscle mass. It is a mass and impairment in muscle function. Mm-hmm. So the ability to like do things needs to be impaired. And so it's like, cause they'll, you know, they'll put up pictures of like some ultra marathoner who's like quite thin, but at the same time, this ultra marathoner is running a marathon in two hours. And it's like their muscle function is not impaired (laughs) by any means. And so the idea that, you know, you're going to condition yourself into sarcopenia if you fail to lift weights, that you're going to condition yourself so hard that you're going to end up unable to stand up out of a chair or something like that is, it's not the case. The reason you end up being unable to stand up out of a chair is because you have stopped doing, whether it's conditioning or resistance training or something like that. So we think that, you know, 
like dose per dose, probably doing resistance training is going to have a bigger effect on muscle mass and muscle strength compared to conditioning mm -hmm. on a, like a dose equated basis. Uh, but we definitely recommend both for a variety of reasons. And I, and I would not be concerned that, you know, you could over condition yourself to the point of frailty. Like that doesn't happen. So, yeah. All right. So you get to say to a patient, they've got, they're like, look, Dr. Brock, I got four hours per week, four separate one hour sessions per week. How many of those should I be lifting? How many of those should I be doing conditioning? What do you say? Yeah, I mean, I think that you can get a pretty solid dose of uh, uh, of, of resistance training. If I think that part of this is going to relate to like what are the exercise modalities that I have available to me? Because again, if I think about like is this person able to deadlift? It's like, you can get a pretty damn good, like whole body, you know, strength training stimulus from that. If they were super time, super, super, if I was, if they were even more time restricted than that, like deadlifting and then doing some conditioning, you can do just fine with like, just, just those two things long-term. And so ultimately the exact way that I break it down, there's going to be a lot of shared decision-making and, and like, what are they enjoyed and interested in? And do they have a bias one way or the other? And is it going to be more of like a, can I negotiate with you to strength train? Or is it going to be more of, can I negotiate with you to condition? Or are you just completely open and you'll do whatever I say, which is almost never the case. Mm -hmm. Yeah. 10 out of 10 would recommend both. And I think making it this, it has to be one or the other. It's like, what are your 10 favorite exercises? It's like, okay, well, here's a list, but unfortunately, or fortunately, I'm not beholden to just picking a few. Somebody on Twitter was like, what are your 10? You can only do 10 exercises the rest of your life. What are they? And I came up with a list, which whatever was fine. And then he's like, oh, that actually didn't seem that hard for you. How about just two exercises? And I was like, <laughs> what? what? <laughs> yeah. So, all right. So that's a, a non-answer here on the Barbell Medicine Podcast, episode 220 with Dr. Austin Baraki. We're answering your questions. All right. Next question. Is there a limit to how much protein one can absorb in a day? So this is not been directly investigated as far as like just ever increasing doses until we see a bunch of protein in the stool, which is how you would like kind of determine this. Uh, but I do know that Dr. Jose Antonio of the International Society of Sports Nutrition, the ISSN, they have their own journal. I believe one of the studies they had people eat like 4.4 grams of protein per kilogram body weight. And yeah, we're just fine. They did a bunch of blood work and stuff. I don't know that they did stool samples in there to see like how much protein entered the stool, but I do know that doses up to, I think it's like three grams per kilo have been studied and still it's less than approximately six grams of protein enter the stool. And it's like, yeah, so pretty much you're getting everything, which is fortunate, you know, because the protein, uh, the human gut and humans in general have multiple redundant mechanisms whereby we take up pretty much all the protein from the diet and it enters into our body and does various things. It contributes to creating new tissues, creates energy and all sorts of stuff. We just don't say, ah, nope, that's the cap. And the rest enters your stool uh, or is like used by bacteria or something. So to answer this question directly, if there is a limit, we are not yet aware of it. And to the degree it's been investigated, it does not seem like we've ever seen a particular limit, um, not only for just a meal, but certainly for a 24 hour or longer period. Yeah. I think there is some variability on an individual basis here. There are multiple steps that are required to both digest and then subsequently absorb dietary protein or any kind of dietary component. So there are things that need to happen in your stomach. There's a contributed contribution from your pancreas. You need to have, you know, an intact and normally functioning, you know, small intestinal lining and things like that. So like problems at any of these steps 
can lead to issues with normal nutrient absorption. And we see these in patients who have various kinds of gastritis or have had parts of their stomach removed, people with their pancreas not functioning properly, people with, you know, various kinds of in inflammatory or autoimmune, you know, intestinal diseases and things like that. But even in the absence of all of those things, there is some individual variation. I remember when we were like way down the rabbit hole on, on obesity in the past, there was some evidence on like variation in how much, uh, uh um, Cal caloric, you know, cal calorie intake ended up getting excreted in people's stool or was like failed to absorb. And actually there is like, a, there are some people who tend to, you know, absorb a little bit less of the calories that they ingest. And that has a protective effect against the development of obesity. The issue is that that is not something that you can modify or that you can <laughs> choose to, to have or not have. And so I think, you know, the bottom line here is like on an individual basis, there's probably some variation in people's like efficiency of protein absorption, calorie absorption, you know, absorption of anything. The issue is you probably can't modify it unless you have one of those like diseases that it needs to be treated. Um, and so to the extent that it exists, it's really not something that is worth thinking about or like worrying about or saying, am I taking in more protein than I can safely? It's like, it's just not a non-issue for most people. It's just kind of interesting to me or to us, I suppose, from like a physiology, pathophysiology kind of standpoint that there is, there are various ways by which you could fail to absorb it. And there's just some na natural inter-individual variation. We just can't change it really. Nor, nor yeah. would you necessarily want to in most cases. Yeah. It's like fractional energy absorption. So this FEA quant quantity of like, oh, are you absorbing 99% of the energy, 100%? Or is it, you know, in an energy surplus, is it less? And yeah, that's dynamic and depends on the individual's genetics, to some extent their environment, to some extent their body composition, what it was previously, what it is now, how it's changing over time. But yeah, as far as actively modifying that, I think uh, currently outside of our reach right now to actually modify that. Yeah. Uh, okay. All right. Perhaps an easier question <laughs> to answer. How much do genetics matter in strength and conditioning? Can we just say a lot and move on? A, a whole lot. <laughs> yeah. yeah. I, I, th I think what people are looking for are like hard numbers here. And it just, it honestly depends on who you read and like what particular outcome you're looking at. If you're looking at like maximal force production, if you're looking at uh, high velocity force production, so power, if you're looking at VO2 max as a metric of conditioning status, et cetera, yes strong genetic component to not only like your baseline values for all of these things like without training but also in the how robustly you respond to a particular intervention like training program uh and the rate at which you do so so like at every step of the way strong genetic component and the you know in general if i was giving a range the most uh, common values that I've come across in literature, anywhere between like 50 and 75% of like the max development is somehow attributed to a series of different genes. Um, hundreds of different genes have been identified that should confer substantial benefit in sports performance, athletic performance, um, and things we can measure. As far as, you know, 100 years from now, when we're both uh, long gone, does that trend up to 80%? It, I, I don't know. I suspect as we identify new ways to analyze complex gene-gene interactions, we're going to get a clearer picture on this. But I have no qualms in saying that strength and conditioning outcomes are heavily influenced by genetics. Um, but at the same time, I wouldn't necessarily say that somebody who appears to be a poor responder right off the jump just necessarily has bad genes. It's just that that particular program does not unlock their potential um, given the genetic hand uh, they were dealt and their current environment they're in. So 
it is what it is to some extent, but like if you're not responding to the program that you're on by whatever way you're measuring it, well, something we can modify is your training program. So, yeah. Yeah. I think that, you know, it is correct to say that they matter probably a lot. It's just that interpreting things like heritability studies is really complicated. And I don't even claim to have, you know, a ton of expertise in, in being able to do that uh, intelligently. But to you, the point you were making there is that you know, we don't even know on an individual level, like what to measure to determine this. And you can't even figure it out for yourself. It's not like you can look at your parents and determine um, unless they were like super freak athletes, even though that still probably doesn't give you any guarantees. Or if your parents were not super freak athletes, that also doesn't give you any guarantees. I don't think that any of our our parents, your, yours or, or mine were freak athletes. And, you know, here we are feeling like we have, you know, decent uh, to above average genetics for, you know, you know, strength and, and, uh, uh, power kind of, uh, development. And so you just can't know this ahead of time. Uh, as, as you said, uh, it's only something that you could kind of look at retrospectively and be like, well, I guess I did. Okay. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. So well, plus, plus all like, you know, just consider somebody who's maybe has a higher than average, like level of strength, height, uh, dexterity, skill, whatever, early on in life and the additional opportunities that affords them for coaching and participation. Yeah. I mean, it's pretty complex. But again, I have no qualms in saying they genes matter a lot as far as how that plays out on on the field, so to speak. Yeah, I think it's just more complex than what your biology says. So, yeah. all right. Question number eight. Is zone two cardio worth all the hype? All right, so I'll start here. We're gonna, this is a little role reversal here. I will start laying some ground and then you can come in with the nuance would okay. normally. Yeah. <laughs> All right. So there's multiple different zones. Uh, this has been catching, getting some, some steam online, but this has been around for a while. There's typically five zones that are described with respect to like aerobic conditioning. And these are based on heart rate zones. Okay. So I, in a perfect world, you would know your max heart rate, which uh, you can't just figure out from 220 minus age. That's been a typical formula used a lot of times, uh, various, uh, people in the endurance world are, you know, publishing various protocols for how to actually test your max heart rate. Um, in any case, zone one would be kind of considered like an active recovery sort of zone. So like pretty low heart rates, uh, somewhere between like, you know, zero to a hundred, zero to 110. That's kind of what we're talking about. And then zone two would be this aerobic capacity zone. Uh, for me, that's somewhere in like the 115 to 130, 135 beats per minute range. Zone three is like a tempo sort of zone. So it's still aerobic, but you're starting to get close to like your lactate threshold. Uh, zone four is right at your lactate threshold, basically the point at which your heart rate and energy expenditure and effort is high enough where you can no longer just sustain your efforts via aerobic uh, energy production. So you're kind of dipping and oscillating between aerobic and anaerobic energy production. Uh, and then zone five is max, like it's effectively at the limit uh, on the limit of your VO2 max. And so the hype, if you will, I don't know if it's hype or just a lot of people talking about it, but zone two is effectively ways to directly train your aerobic conditioning, which seems to be very, very important for not only uh, health like sort of uh, outcomes, improving your aerobic fitness definitely seems to have a dose dependent relationship uh, between that value, any way you want to measure it and sort of health outcomes. But also it seems to be getting a lot of hype because it seems to be not that fatiguing compared to doing like high intensity interval training, threshold type training where you're, I'm, I'm going to do 30 minutes on the bike as hard as I can. It's like, well, 
yeah, that's likely to improve your aerobic fitness, but at what cost? And the way I draw this analogy to lifting, it's like training in like the 85% to 90% sort of range. It's like, yeah, it's making you stronger. Yeah, it's driving hypertrophy, you know, power production, all these sort of things, but it costs you a lot. So you can't do it very often. And if you try to do it very often, you tend to outkick your coverage with respect to fatigue management. So zone two is basically a easy entry point. Like pretty much everybody can do it. It's not that fatiguing. So adding it to your current volume of training doesn't seem to be too, too bad uh, with respect to total training load. Uh, and then, yeah, seems to develop aerobic conditioning fairly, fairly, uh, fairly well. Does it do it better than being in zone three, that sort of tempo zone or the threshold zone? That doesn't appear to be well supported. Uh, it just seems like you can do more of it without necessarily increasing your training load um, to a high level that may cause some issues. And so that's to answer the question, is it worth the, is it worth the hype? I mean, I guess I just don't know that I would do that. And I don't think I would recommend doing that to the exclusion of training in other zones, so to speak, if you have a, uh, either a specific conditioning goal, particularly one that's not based in like zone two sort of effort. Uh, or if you want to build this broad base of conditioning, I think you need exposure to multiple different zones, maybe not at the same proportion right i wouldn't do the same proportion of zone five and zone four to zone two but i don't know that just focusing only on zone two would be my recommendation in general yeah i'm just glad that people are talking about conditioning at all um particularly you know that it's bleeding over a little bit into the lifting world from what we can tell and then additionally that you know even if they're not consciously thinking about it in this way but what you pointed out in terms of like the difference between the stimulus and the fatigue it's a very favorable place to live for you know the amount of aerobic stimulus that you get out of it compared to the amount of fatigue like it is trivial you know for us for example who are primarily you know strength athletes i would say but to do an hour of conditioning at that like 120 to 130 heart rate zone is not a big deal um, for us, <laughs> for us to do that. And I don't feel smoked afterwards could do it again. You know, the next day I could do it the same day again, if I wanted to. Um, and so I think that similar to how we've talked about dosing in strength training with respect to the stimulus and the fatigue, it's kind of a similar analog here. And so in, in strength training, you know, you and I do a ton of our, you know, volume work in like the, say like 60 to 70, 75% range, something like that with a little bit less exposure around like 80% and a tiny amount of exposure around like 90% or, or higher, maybe a couple singles a week or something like that. And it's kind of similar here. You know, most of the training volume that you're going to do in terms of your conditioning uh, should be at a uh, at, at a range that is tolerable and manageable from a fatigue standpoint while delivering the stimulus that you're you're looking for. So, um, you know, not a heart rate of I don't know that I would let the heart rate uh, of zone one go all the way down to zero because that would be pathologic. But, um, <laughs> Seems bad. Seems but bad. down there, you're going to get less of the stimulus for you know, essentially no, no real fatigue if you're at your resting heart rate. So we want some stimulus, but the, but the kind of the optimization of that, um, you know, more or less, despite not loving that word happens probably more or less in this, in this zone two kind of area. And then you can have less and less and less exposure as you get to the higher and higher and higher intensities. And then finally, to the extent that people are, you know, like us, for example, primarily focused on say strength training or one rep max powerlifting performance, 
I don't really have a great need to, to do any like say zone five or what, like like the top end stuff because our strength training is like kind of like that. It's zone, <laughs> you know? six. It's so zone I don't six. <laughs> I don't I don't do ultra high intensity interval stuff um, almost at all. Um, you know for for a while now outside of if I'm like ultra time crunched and I really want to do some conditioning for some reason which does not happen all that often anymore. So yeah. that's kind of how I think about it. Yeah, just like the way my training has gone for motocross, like when I first started, it was predominantly all zone two-ish stuff because I needed that base of aerobic conditioning. And I had been doing some conditioning prior, but not like a a bunch of dedicated stuff. So now I'm getting close to about 1500 minutes per week of conditioning and still the majority of it is zone two, zone three. Uh, But I do have quite frequent exposures to zone four uh and zone five stuff during the week usually once uh uh, for each but that is sports specific for me and so you have people that participate in different conditioning based sports they're gonna need a different sort of rx than somebody who's like no i'm just doing this for like wellness promotion right it's like it's like if i was if i was training full-time in the pool yeah i'd be intermittently doing some like race pace sprint stuff breath hold all anaerobic whatever the case is you know but that's very low in volume same stuff for like lifting though it's like all right if you're not ever going to go to a meet how many times can you do singles yeah in a training never. it's like never <laughs> yeah. yeah okay last question for training then we'll move on uh and this was from sal so i included this i made sure we included this okay w- when should someone modify a template and how can they go about it intelligently <laughs> and and this could have been like a 45 minute answer like hey how to program <laughs> um but I, so the first thing is I'll give you guys a resource in the low intensity fatigue the ebook accompanying that it's like an 80 something page book on programming that uh, we wrote. Um, there's like a pretty good like troubleshooting section like, hey, here's what's going on. Here's some like diagnostic sort of things you can go through. And here's how I would change the program in, in response to that. Uh, so, for example, if people are too fatigued, here are some signs that they would they would have that. And then here's what I would do to manage the fatigue or if it's. That appears like there's not enough fatigue, so people aren't sore. People, you know, aren't uh, necessarily dreading going to the gym. People are able to complete all the work. This, that, the other, uh, but still not necessarily making gains. I'm like, hmm, well, maybe it's not enough. And so here's how I would ratchet that up: go up in volume 10%, keep the sort of proximity to failure the same, things of that nature. But the crux of this question, I think, is like, at what point when you're following a training program do you say, mm, this ain't it? And and I think I go back to like we did a podcast on like how quickly people get stronger and like this rate of improvement. And I think I feel comfortable saying if over a span of like four to six weeks, you're not seeing an improvement in values or metrics that are important to you. So the weight on the bar hasn't gone up the average load that you're lifting. So like the floor of your performance hasn't gone up in that time. Um, to me that suggests, Hey, you're not, really responding well to this program. If you're principally interested in hypertrophy muscle growth, I would extend that out probably like six, eight, maybe even 10 weeks. And you're going by measurements at that point, uh, assuming that you're either maintaining or gaining weight. And you're like, oh, I'm not really seeing an improvement in muscular size. Uh, that's kind of the time frame I would be looking at um, just for demonstrable metrics. And then uh, kind of aside to that, but still you're doing this all at the same time, figuring out like, is somebody like overly fatigued meaning that they they come into the gym they're they're routinely sore they're dreading going to the gym they're not excited about the training their uh performance might even be trending down for example due to either being uncomfortable or uh, being sore or maybe they're dealing with a bunch of acute injuries that have cropped up all of those things seem to point like hmm, 
Maybe the fatigue is too high. The training load is too high. And in that case, I'd consider the following, reducing volume, reducing proximity, uh, or actually increasing proximity to failure. So like going from RP8 to RP7 or 6, lowering the average intensity, things like that. Um, But those are the timescales I'm thinking about. And then the types of uh, feedback I'm looking to get from my clients and subsequently people who I might be modifying a template uh, would be that, how are you feeling? What's your performance been like? Uh, and then when, it, how are you feeling? It's not only just physically, but also psychologically. Um, what other sort of th- questions do you think you'd ask somebody to get like a baseline of how is this person doing with the program? I think, yeah, my, the way that I would approach this problem, I guess the, the breakdown that I would have, the, the differential that I would have is the person's either not enjoying the program, in which case identify why and address those targets, or they're not responding to the program. And then if they're not responding to the program, I have to try to figure out, is it because it is too much, it is too little, or it is kind of like the wrong type of training? Those are like basically all the possibilities for reasons why I might modify something. So for the lack of enjoyment, that's just a conversation of tell me why, tell me what's going on, tell me what you like, tell me what you don't like, and then figure out intelligent substitutions to better accommodate what they're interested in, what they're looking for, what their goals are, et cetera. If they're not responding, then asking questions to try to differentiate, is it too much? And that has to do with questions of fatigue and soreness and injuries and things like that. Um, And then we're modifying dosing. As you mentioned, the first thing that I typically do has to do with volume and then dropping RPE targets for sure. If it seems to be too little that they're not really getting any better, but they always feel super fresh and they're just like chomping at the bit to try to do more then I might try (laughs) adding a couple sets um, to some of the main movements or potentially to the accessory work. Um, I'd probably do one or the other up front, not just like sets across the board for the whole week and kind of layer it on gently. And then if it's neither of those things and they're just like kind of floundering, um, then I might just try a more significant wholesale change of things, keeping the general dosages kind of relatively similar, but maybe swapping out exercises and things like that to see if there's something else that maybe even if it's for psychological reasons that they are more motivated by or get more buy-in to, that they just try harder. Maybe that's the missing variable. Yeah. They just need to try, yeah. <laughs> you know? So that's kind of like the big picture breakdown of how I think about this. Yeah, this sort of algorithm differential diagnosis and then like what do, again, is pretty much fleshed out in the low intensity ebook. Uh, and that's kind of where I would go if you were like, yeah, can you put all that on paper in like a, <laughs> a document that's well-written? And it's like, well, we can argue about the well-written part, but uh, <laughs> that's where I would go. All right, let's move on to the medicine section here on episode 220. We're answering your questions from the internet with Dr. Austin Baraki. So, all right, Austin, this is uh, going to put your doctor hat on. Blood pressure went up when I started lifting. It went from 120 over 80 to 130 over 80. During the same time period, I went from 145 pounds to 170 pounds and have since gained weight to 185 pounds with a 34-inch waist. My blood pressure is still in the 130s systolic. What do? And just for the listeners at home, the current sort of cutoffs for like, what is a healthy blood pressure? It's under 120, top number systolic, uh, and under 80, diastolic. That's the bottom number. If you're between 120 and 130, that's considered elevated. It's above 130. uh, It's considered uh, hypertension. And then there's different categories and stuff. But the whole point is like, if you're 125 over 85 and you're like, and your doctor says, oh, you're good to go. Mm, 
eh, that used to be the case, but as of what, 2017 or something like that, the American Heart Association said, no mas. So we'd prefer it to be less than 120, less than 80, assuming you're not, uh, you know, hypotensive, which when people go, well, what, could my blood pressure be too low? It's like, yes, but the definition of having too low blood pressure is you have some sort of either symptom or organ uh, system or systems that are not getting enough blood flow. And that's cropping up either symptomatically or via uh, some other sort of measure test. And so if somebody sees this, their blood pressure increase with training, how do you interpret that? Yeah, the first, before even getting started with this, you want to get a sense of how much do you trust the measurements. So from the first sentence, it was like, went from 120 over 80 to 130 over 80. And that raises questions for me. Like, did you measure it once before and then once another day and you saw this difference? Because again, blood pressure varies literally from like second to second, minute to minute throughout the day. And so it is not so static that you can do one-time measurements. Additionally, when it is measured, is it being measured with correct technique? There's a bunch of criteria for how to measure your blood pressure with correct technique. And rather than going through that now, I'll just point people to the blood pressure. There's two-part blood pressure article uh, series on the website, and the part one has specific instructions. Additionally, do I trust the blood pressure machine and the cuff that you are using? And so we provided links for how to identify machines that you trust. Uh, so validatebp.org is a website that has uh, kind of like the, the uh, uh, trusted or like the validated calibrated kind of blood pressure uh, uh, machines. Um, and so usually when a patient is telling me that they're checking their blood pressure, I'm trying to get a sense of um, are they using one of those kinds of machines? Or if they're asking me where can I get one that I trust if they want to get one, that's usually where I, where I send people to go. I have no, like no affiliation with that site. Yeah, no conflict like of interest so, or whatever. Uh, but that's that's just where where I would start. So uh, a machine that I trust, a measurement technique that I trust, and then typically, and I just did this with a telemedicine patient the other day who was concerned about his blood pressure. I try to get two measurements in the morning and two measurements in the evening for three days. And there's some evidence that that gives you enough data on which to base your decisions. And now this is for like non-extreme range blood pressures, right? So if somebody's checking their blood pressure a couple of times and it's like 180 over 110, then I trust that that is high, assuming the technique and the machine are. are are, you know, good, and I'll start treating that patient and and be pretty aggressive about it. But this is more in this kind of, you know, soft range for for calling a diagnosis of, of hypertension. If it's in the 130s, 140s, then I want we have time to work on this. There's no emergency, so I'll do multiple measurements over the course of a few days, and then try to make make some decisions. Um, Typically, I tend to be somewhat more aggressive with starting blood pressure medicines up front to get control sooner, uh, while also working on all the lifestyle-related factors. And then if the person's able to come off the blood pressure medicine later on, then that's all good. But we think about blood pressure being high and the duration that it is high for meaning like the total exposure that your body has to high blood pressure, similar to how we talk about the total duration of exposure that your body has to high blood cholesterol. Or for people who smoke cigarettes, the total duration, pack years, how many years they smoked X number of packs, like that kind of area under the curve. And so I want to get that number down ASAP. And so to the extent that meds can help me do that in the short term while I work on the lifestyle factors or do the evaluation for some of the other factors, um, like getting a sleep study and things like that, then then I'd rather have control now rather than say, let's order all these tests and then we'll check in again in like three months. And in the meantime, you have three months of exposure to high blood pressure that we could have otherwise avoided. So in this particular case, if I trust that this individual's blood pressure went up from 120 over 80 and is now consistently running well into the 130s, um, then I would prefer that to be lower based on the risk cutoffs that we have established and what we know from from the evidence on this. And I have somewhat of a suspicion that his weight gain is playing a role here. The question is, is it more so due to weight gain and fat gain? Is it 
more so due to weight gain leading to, you know, the development of obstructive sleep apnea? Is it due to weight gain? And that's incidental with other factors that are playing more of a role. Is he using, you know, NSAID like ibuprofen all the time to deal with pain and training that can make your blood pressure go up? Is he drinking alcohol too much that can make your blood pressure go up? What kind of, what does his dietary pattern look like that can make your blood pressure go up? And so if this sounds like a lot of stuff to think about, it is. And that's why you should be working with a physician to get your blood pressure under control. But if you want a resource that lays all this stuff out in great detail um, with each of the things that I think about when I'm talking to a patient um, for just regular run-of-the-mill high blood pressure, then it is also in part two of the article blood pressure article series on our website. There are numerous causes of high blood pressure beyond what is listed there, and that's what we start to think about if we're having kind of unusually high blood pressure, blood pressure that's high in a very young person, blood pressure that's resistant to getting under control with the use of medications. Um that's kind of more more advanced stuff, but that's kind of how I think about it in this situation. A, I have to make sure I trust the measurements. B, I want to get control. And then C, I'm thinking about all the potential treatable slash modifiable, reversible lifestyle factors like diet, like exercise, alcohol, medication use, stimulant use, sleep apnea, things like that. Yeah. And just to say, there is a very, 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 very small fraction of people who will initiate exercise and their blood pressure will for whatever reason, go up. That we saw that in the heritage study. Uh, it's a non-zero number. It's very, very small. Uh, but you know, everybody's different. Has their own genetic hand, and their you know, lifestyle factors are certainly involved in this that, and the other. But it's not impossible that this could happen. Is like, hey man, for whatever reason, un- unlucky, blood pressure just kind of went up ten point ten, you know, millimeters of mercury. Due to, due to exercise, but still the other benefits of exercise are still there. We just now have something else that we might need to lifestyle differently or lifestyle harder and, or treat with medication and, you know, to, to put your, our bet, our best foot forward with respect to like health trajectory. So that's a thing. Okay. Next question with respect to cardiovascular risk, why is saturated fat from dairy products, particularly milk? and cheese different from saturated fat from red meat what aren't they the same chemically austin like what why why do we see these studies come out over and over and over again so that shows saturated fat from milk doesn't have the same effects of saturated fat from red meat what's what's the deal with that yeah so first of all no they're not the same chemically um, yes, you have carbons bonded to hydrogens, but these chains are of different lengths and they are also surrounded by and embedded in foods that have all sorts of other stuff in it. And those nutrient nutrient interactions and the structural kind of relationships between those things is a lot more complicated than just the raw material, like molecules that's called like the food matrix effect that we've talked about on some previous podcasts. But in general, we have, you know, pretty good reason to believe from all sorts of, you know, prospective cohort data that when it comes to dietary fats, that uh, the unsaturated fatty acids um, like PUFAs and MUFAs, things that come from like fish and nuts and, you know, olive oils and things like that uh, tend to confer, you know, the lowest uh, cardiovascular risk. Uh, compared with saturated fats. And then of course, trans fats that have been banned from the food supply are the most harmful. And then within the saturated fat category, um, we have evidence from these similar kind of prospective cohort data sets um, relating not only to the amount of intake, but substitution effects of one food for another, and then kind of long-term you know, relationships between uh, a habitual intake of these things and cardiovascular risk and other associated health risks. 
And so when it comes to the saturated fat type products, I kind of break it down into the lower risk types, which are more dairy based, particularly things like milk, cheese, and yogurt. Um, and then the higher risk types that are more kind of fatty cuts of red meat and, and butter. And so the, there's a lot, there's a lot of uh, potential ways that um, we think this difference in effect could be mediated by, including this kind of food matrix type effect. Um, the calcium content seems to be, in particular, one uh, one one uh, kind of proposed reason why there could be this difference in effect. That the calcium content of the milk and cheese and yogurt um, is is one element that would be higher compared with the other foods and can be protective. In addition to just unique and differences in the chemical effects of the different types of saturated fats that are most prevalent in these different kinds of foods. And then there's this interesting thing that I do not claim to be an expert in, but this idea that when you churn, you know, milk to generate butter, you can remove certain compounds, including this thing called milk fat globule membrane, which is also thought to be, you know, something that is beneficial and protective. And when you strip that away in the process of producing butter, you have this, you know, product ultimately that is enriched in the fats. It has that product removed, is lower in calcium. And ultimately, um, the, the, the reason why matters less than the fact that we see the evidence of differences in outcomes, right? And so there's all sorts of potential reasons that I could throw out. But ultimately, it's the consistency of effect that we see, for example, on blood lipids blood, you know, uh, apo, lipoprotein B containing lipoproteins, LDL cholesterol, things like that, that are ultimately different with habitual intake of high levels of these differences in foods and the uh, impact that we see when substituting one for another, or when substituting the saturated fat intake for something that is unsaturated altogether, uh, the very consistent impact that we see there on reducing these blood biomarkers and ultimately on, on reducing risk. So there's a whole bunch of potential reasons why I laid out some of them if you want to nerd out on those, but ultimately, you know, from, I think you would agree from our perspective, we care a little bit less, not, not that it's uninteresting to us, but we care a little bit less about the exact reason and mechanism why compared with like, these are the data for actual outcomes in humans that we care about, not test tube stuff, not Petri dish stuff, not rat stuff. Um, so yeah. Yeah. The mechanisms are certainly interesting. They become even more interesting when they become part of like the remedy, right? If you don't see this thing play out in humans, or in this particular case, you see the thing play out over and over and over and over again in humans, you're like, hmm, well, <laughs> the mechanisms be damned. We're going to figure this out on the on the backside of this, and then you know maybe maybe we'll have some more information to add. Yeah, uh, so we're down, we're down with yogurt. Go for it. Yeah, big big yogurt guy. Yeah, big <laughs> yogurt here. <laughs> uh, all right, we did a podcast on this, but I think it, it re this requires some uh, uh discussion is non-alcoholic fatty liver disease associated with chronic dieting we have a whole podcast on nafld and so i looked into this and it's just the answer no the answer is no like <laughs> i'm trying to understand the question is it asking whether chronic dieting increases the risk yes. of fatty liver that's, no, that's the, yeah. the opposite. If you right. diet successfully, you will cure your fatty liver if you yeah. achieve 10% weight loss or greater. Right. So there's, there's, uh, if you wanted to look at this in a, I don't know, skeptical ish or conspiracy theory, maybe even kind of way <laughs> you'd say, well, if you are dieting, you have a higher risk of having non-alcoholic fatty liver disease because that is one of maybe the treatments. <laughs> yeah. 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 The, the causation arrow is going the wrong way in that particular yeah. relationship. It's right. just like, uh, there's some studies showing like BMIs are higher in people who are chronically dieting. And then people take that to mean, <laughs> oh, you, well, if you have a high BMI, you shouldn't 
attempt weight loss. And it's like, well, just because the, the weight loss efforts haven't been successful doesn't mean that calorie restriction isn't a treatment for individuals with obesity. It just means that we need yeah. better methods. Okay. Uh, hey, training with a herniated disc, what do? <laughs> this is a complicated <laughs> one too. <I> know. Uh, <laughs> well, you, you would, you, well, you would want to know, like, how do you know they have a herniated disc? When did it happen? What symptoms do you currently have? What are you currently able to do? And, you know, what is your general, like, outlook on things going? That just tells you, all of the things tell you, like, the acuity, that where this person is well, as far as needing, like, education versus, you know, uh, 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 an actual plan, right? Because a person who's in, like, a ton of pain can't do, they feel like they can't do anything right now. And they think, like, this, I'm now, this is my life. That person doesn't need a workout plan. That person needs some uh, reassurance, some education, and then and then only then can we start developing the shared plan for like here's how we should adjust physical activity going forward with regular follow up. But the person who's like, yeah, I had a herniated disc seven years ago. Like, how should my training be different? It's like, uh, no impact on training at all. So yeah, just hearing this question. I mean, you asked essentially all the perfect questions that I would ask somebody in the situation. I think of like four, yes, you would pass your rotation with me. Uh, there are like four big categories that I can think of here. The first of like people who quote unquote have a herniated disc is somebody who got imaging for like no good reason and happened to have one or who hasn't even gotten imaging and thinks they have one um, for again, unclear reasons. And in that situation, carry on. You don't need anything. The next kind of possibility is somebody who has back pain and got imaging that may or may not have been appropriate and it identified some a herniated disc that again may or may not be related to their back pain because not all herniated discs are causal of the person's pain that they're experiencing at that time in which case our standard rehab recommendations would apply if somebody just has general back pain um, not specific re you know, specifically related to a herniated disc then again our usual hernia uh, our usual rehab uh, advice that we mentioned at the beginning of the podcast and in the pain and training article on the website would apply here the third category would be somebody who has a clearly and convincingly symptomatic disc herniation. And that is somebody with a radicular pain syndrome, like low back pain with pain radiating down the back of a leg all the way down to the floor, or who has radiculopathy, i.e. who has sensory changes and weakness or, or something like that. Um, then that is a, some, a, a little bit more complicated scenario where somebody should probably consult with a healthcare professional. That could be our rehab team. That could be a physician, somebody that they trust the more significant the deficits. If somebody has a flaccid leg, obviously you need to go get surgery immediately. <laughs> somebody has caught equina syndrome. That's, you know, so this is kind of like the spectrum. It's like somebody who's like, oh, I think I have a herniated disc because my back hurt once. And it's like, mm, we need to have a whole conversation about this, this topic probably, but you don't need significant training modifications all the way to the other extreme of like clear, convincing disc herniation. Then I want to get a sense of like, is there muscle motor weakness that needs medical intervention? Or is it no motor weakness, just pain that admittedly can be excruciating, but just pain we can manage, takes time, gets better. We can modify activity, uh, but there's a whole spectrum of this. And so this is something that ultimately, if you are unsure what to do, we have a lot of resources on this and we have an expert team that uh, does a really good job working with people on these issues. And several of them have dealt with severe back pain or like in Derek Miles's case has had a herniated disc with quadriceps weakness of his own. And he is uh, effectively back to normal and he can, you know, do all the things. So, so he has personal experience with this as well and, and does a great job. Yeah. So the non, the typical non-answer, well, it depends, but we can help if we get some more information. Yeah. yeah. All right. Next question here under medicine. 
Is there any evidence, again, there's that phrase again, is there any evidence that too much muscle mass could reduce lifespan? And so I'm going to play protagonist here. I'll say, sure. <laughs> okay, so a few, so so two lines of evidence here. So one, we know that based on a large data sets that individuals who have BMI levels greater than 30 despite carrying either a ton of muscle mass or a low amount of muscle mass, have predominantly the same cardiometabolic risk. So risk of heart disease, type 2 diabetes, and other complications therein. Effectively, that's not to say that muscle mass, having more muscle mass isn't protective, so to speak. It's just not as protective as the potential harm for carrying the concomitant amount of excess body fat at that level. So it's like, well, super muscular, but also carrying... Um, a bunch of uh, extra adipose tissue that seems to be more risky than the protective effect of carrying muscle mass. Uh, the other line of evidence that I will say, and I'll expect your rebuttal here, sir, is that when you look at the data on competitive or recreational bodybuilders and their lifespans, it's not, it's not good. It's not, it's not good. And a lot of that is connected to polypharmacy, certainly PED use and, and some other habits within that scene. And so, and I'm not calling out the bodybuilding community because this is just as rampant in the powerlifting community and really just sports in general, particularly where the strength power sports or strength power muscle uh, mass sports. It's just like, yeah, you know, if you have to go through great lengths, particularly perhaps unsavory lengths to gain a bunch of extra muscle mass that might have an untoward effect on health. But if you're strictly asking, is carrying more muscle mass without necessarily more fat mass without using performance enhancing drugs uh, or other sort of pharmaceutical uh, pharmaceuticals um, does that necessarily decrease lifespan uh, i am not aware of any convincing evidence showing that but i i await your rebuttal sir if we're if we're taking sides on this <laughs> i don't know that i have a super strong rebuttal i think i agree that this is one of those scenarios where it matters how you got there so how did you get so jacked um if if it was through the use of higher risk strategies and through the use of you know certain drugs and things like that then of course that's going to confer uh more risk to the extent that the muscle mass also was accompanied by fat mass. See our last podcast that we did on metabolic syndrome in athletes. And then that confers tons of cardiovascular risk, like the lifespan of field sport athletes, like football players and things like uh, American football players and things like that is not great. Um, and so, yeah, I think the way that you get the muscle mass is what matters uh, primarily. But again, you also have to consider, was that or was that not accompanied by fat mass as evidenced by, say, your waist measurement and things like, like that that we've talked about before? So those are kind of like the things I'm thinking about. If somebody is not on any PEDs and their waist measurement is within, you know, generally in the accepted uh, risk cutoffs and is not clearly developing signs of, uh, you know, body fat related uh, diseases and things like that, then I'm not really too concerned about them gaining a bit more muscle mass in most scenarios. Yeah, I suppose if someone got like super, super jacked without using PEDs and it was otherwise did not have an excess amount of body fat, but developed severe obstructive sleep apnea and that was untreated. <laughs> I yeah, suppose they get that pulmonary hypertension and RV failure and die from that. There's, yeah. there's, there's all, all roads lead to death, but it's just, you know, choose your own adventure. Choose but I can't own. think of too many scenarios where somebody comes to me lean, jacked, not using drugs, where I'm like, you know, I strongly recommend you lose muscle mass. Yeah, we should consider atrophy. Yeah. Like, right. <laughs> uh, yeah, on that same topic, we got this question. I thought this would be interesting just to just dip our toes into the water here. Sure. What are the downsides to using PEDs, <laughs> deep sigh. Um, I, I think first and foremost, this is not an extensive like treating of the topic. We could do a whole podcast series on this, and maybe we will. 
I don't know. I think the bigger problem is that when we do podcasts, we try to suss out what does the current evidence say? Like, what do we feel confident in, you know, communicating to our audience in a ideally clear and concise ish manner? And on PEDs, that is very difficult to do just given the amount of available literature outside of maybe like TRT and some uh, other potential uh, drugs that are that are used, particularly stimulants, for example. But if you're talking about, you know, common drugs in the lifting scene, if you're talking about Decadurabol and so Nandrolone, if you're talking about Anavar or Oxandrolone, uh, you go even further down into newer stuff like the selective androgen receptor modulators, and you're looking for actual evidence on like, what do these things do in humans? Like, what are the risks? you're coming up, you know, either empty or with very, very limited data. And so to feel confident that like, hey, here are the demonstrable risks and how that stacks up over a lifetime, you know, versus acute use for a few months. That's difficult. So that all being said, the biggest problem I see with PED use is this black market it is created amongst athletes, whether they're competitive or recreational athletes. So effectively, these are illegal in most countries. Uh, and so people are getting them from unsavory sources. Like if, if you were to go try to get a lot of anabolic steroids, uh, you're not going to your doctor, even if they're a cool doctor, best case scenario in that they're prescribing you TRT, but they're not going to prescribe you, you know, all these other agents that people are commonly using. Um, and so at that point you're, you have to switch to getting them through, you know, I make the joke of like Vinny down at Gold's Gym and it's like, well, maybe, <laughs> maybe that's kind of uh, uh, hyperbole, but it's not that far off. And so then where are those things? How are they being manufactured? They're not being manufactured in a pharmaceutical grade laboratory that is being held to the highest standard where you know what you're getting, the dosing of what you're getting, the purity of what you're getting. And then on top of that, so just the concern with the agent itself, nobody's monitoring this individual in general, like this, these webs, these forums where people congregate and talk about different cycles and their different experience. They're like, oh yeah, do blood work. And it's like, well, how are you equipped to actually interpret your own blood work? And like, aren't there other things that you might want to be monitored for from like a harm reduction standpoint? Uh, and, and it just keeps going on and on <clears throat> down the line. And so it, I think this, this whole black market, this secret, uh, uh, this veil of secrecy, where this all happens is probably the biggest downside because a whole number of unwanted effects on not only your physiology. So you think about stuff like left ventricular hypertrophy, you'd think about uh, uh, your red blood cell line and other formed elements of the blood expanding where people's blood becomes super viscous and they're not necessarily monitoring that. You think about liver damage, you think about kidney damage, a whole host of things. And then further, like once you get into this field, like a bunch of other things become acceptable, like, oh, maybe we'll play around with these other recreational drugs. And, and, and so this whole like subset of risky behaviors that kind of go together, in addition to not being monitored, not necessarily knowing where you're getting from, that to me, those are like the biggest risks. But each agent would have its own like risk profile and benefit profile. And so to say like how that calculus shakes out for a particular individual, I think that deserves probably a deeper discussion. But there are no... There's no such thing as a biological free lunch. You, there are risks. Uh, and I think in the lifting scene, in the strength, power, muscle mass, sport scene, those risks are generally downplayed and people are not being monitored uh, appropriately and, no, and they're not really able to get 
the agents that they think that they're getting. Um, and we just had this discussion about selective androgen receptor modulators uh, on our Facebook group. And people are saying, oh, look at this study. You know, it shows benefit. It's like, yeah, so that was in mouse cells on a Petri dish. There's actually no safety data published on this particular agent in humans. And so I don't know how confident I feel in what's going to happen to humans. One, two, these drugs are still in like phase two clinical trials. So that means that the agent that you're trying to get that drug is not available. Even if you think you have a prescription, it's being sent to some compounding pharmacy, not to say that compounding pharmacies are bad, but not only do they not have access to like the raw, the thing, but like they're trying to make it. And, you know, that's usually above and beyond what most pharmacies uh, can do. And so you're likely getting something else at a different dose. And then again, who's monitoring all of this? So a lot of big problems. Um, I don't know that I feel comfortable making a sweeping generalization, like watch out for your heart. It's like, <laughs> watch out for a hundred things. I don't know. Yeah. Yeah. PEDs is just way too broad of a category. And and what is a performance enhancing drug is dependent on the sport. And then within each sport, there are different kind of performance enhancing possibilities. But hey, I mean, even like caffeine has some performance enhancing kind of effects. Is there risk to using caffeine? Yes. When you exceed a certain dose, there is toxicity. People have died from taking way too much caffeine anhydrous powder. Um, that is a thing that can happen. So there are individual risk profiles for each agent. I think that in our scene, people are probably mostly talking about anabolics, but you meant you brought up a good point around stimulants. But then in other sports, stimulants would be a performance worsening drug, like in archery or something where you're taking like propranolol instead, which is performance enhancing. And that would be quote unquote, protective for your heart potentially in that situation to be to be on a beta blocker. So what is performance enhancing is pretty, uh, you know, variable from from sport to sport in the context of anabolics. Yes, even there, there are individual risk profiles, although broadly speaking, yes, I'm more mostly concerned about cardiovascular, hematologic, so blood, liver, and kidney. And I've seen examples in humans, in actual patients, of uh, either you know uh, acute organ injury, chronic organ failure, or you know other catastrophic you know kind of things emerge from uh, use of these agents, typically in an unregulated fashion, typically at crazy doses, but sometimes even at normal doses and the person just had bad, has bad luck. Now, who is the person who's going to see all those bad things happen? Me, the hospital doctor. And so I am cognizant of my selection bias of like people who do the worst are going to end up in my ER where I might see them. And that that is not everybody's experience. Um, so I don't want to overgeneralize in the other direction either. But I, but I do think that, you know, an accurate kind of accounting of the risks relative to the benefits in the context of a given sport, in the context of the person's goals and why they might be using this as a recreational gym goer versus somebody who's trying to like, you know, win Olympic gold or something like all of these things change the calculus on, on an individual level within the context of sport and rules and testing. And it's something that I uh, do not know enough about to give super confident, uh, you know, commentary on, but outside of like the health specific effects and what you might do to mitigate those outside of just not using the things. Yeah, you would hope that uh, sport sporting organizations would use an evidence-based approach to not only testing and identifying individuals using banned substances, but also in monitoring, you know, people. Like if you have a if you have a doping protocol that only identifies less than 1% of everybody who is likely doping, that is not an effective protocol. You're not effectively catching enough people to dissuade the people at large from from using and further if the penalties are not significant enough to discourage use as evidenced by a declining trend in positive tests then what you know 
then the system is broken. And I think that's where we're at currently. But again, it's gonna be a whole nother podcast. Uh, I just wanted to kind of, yeah, it's a sizzle question. Yeah. All right. Okay. Hey, speaking of sizzle questions, <laughs> <laughs> what is today's most pressing public health issue? Do you, do you want to start this or is it going to be like a color blue thing? Sure. All right. No, I mean, I think that, I think that there's a few different ways that you could look at this, this question. Um, one could be just through the lens of mortality. What kills the most people? And that is going to be cardiovascular disease in the top spot followed by, by cancer. So you could just look at what's killing people and address those things. You could look at morbidity and disability, in which case things can change a little bit. And then suddenly things like chronic musculoskeletal pain go way up on the, <laughs> on the scale. Um, low back pain, things like that end up being a major, major issue worldwide. Um, so those are, those are a couple uh, ways to look at it, but those are also looking at like the end states of the issue in terms of like, this is what people are actually dealing with in terms of morbidity, what they're struggling with, what's impacting their livelihood, causing disability, or what's actually killing them. The other way to look at this is a little bit higher upstream in terms of what are the factors that, you know, from a public health perspective that are, you know, leading to those outcomes. And I think this is probably where I prefer to look at things. And I think it is much more uh, compelling of a case to look at what are known as the social determinants of health. And so um, there's a ton of evidence and research and commentary and information out there. I recently just had a, a, a I was going through some of the, the way too many PDF papers that I have saved on my computer and and kind of reorganizing them and, and picking a few that I'm going to read in this upcoming week. And one of them that I had saved that I'm going to come back to is called Social Connection as a Public Health Issue, the evidence for a the evidence and a systemic framework for prioritizing the social and social determinants of health. Um, this was from last year by uh, an author named Lundstad. And so um, there's, again, this is not like the one article to rule them all, but it is one that gets really into this this topic of social determinants of health. And it is kind of like everything about a person's existence, the social context in which they live, the resources that they are afforded and things like that, that then as a consequence downstream might lead to the inaccessibility of habitual exercise, poor dietary patterns or access to, to healthy foods, inadequate education, insecure housing, you know, uh, uh, financial security and income, employment, social connection with other people, loneliness, isolation, all those kind of things, the ability to have, you know, leisure time, all sorts of things like that, that those are the factors that coalesce and lead to the really adverse long-term health outcomes that we ultimately see. Now, is it possible for people who are wealthy and secure and employed and have you know access to exercise and healthy diets to still die of cardiovascular disease? Yes, it happens all the time. But I think that you know, if I were to take a big picture view as like what is the biggest kind of public health issue, it is all these things that fall within the social determinants of health that set up so many for poor health outcomes. And I think a large proportion of that morbidity of chronic musculoskeletal pain and mortality due to things like cardiovascular disease and cancer would not happen if we were in a society that had uh, that were, were set up um, such that these social determinants were not as uh, harmful or as adverse of factors for, for uh, so many people as they are. Yeah, I think you and I took a similar approach. I did uh, like a singular factor, but it still is social determinant of health. Just And my number one is poverty. Just effectively peop that that kind of determines people's trajectory with respect to education access access to healthcare access to uh health promoting activities versus you know health detracting activities and all, all all every step along the way and it's like if if we if that's not fixed on some level 
from a public health standpoint, like we will not be able to make progress because so many people are suffering from poverty. And uh, we had made some strides up until like the 90s-ish, but in the recent decades, things have kind of come to a, a halt here in the United States as far as like <laughs> improving uh, uh, poverty. And so, yeah, I think we put both took, people were probably expecting us to say like obesity or like no. not being strong enough. And it's like, well, no. <laughs> yeah, we're like, yeah, kind of, but those are all like features of a bigger problem, which have to, yeah, as we would, uh, we would say probably most socially determined then yeah then just like yeah so people need to work out more do the uh, case closed <laughs> like and, and to be clear that's the, that, that's the smooth brain take <laughs> to be clear though i don't think either of us would feel comfortable opining about a solution to social determinants of health solutions to poverty in developed nations or underdeveloped like i don't know how to fix that i you know I feel more confident how to improve somebody's squat by twenty percent in you know a few a few months. But as far as like what to do about the poverty problem, like that, there's a reason uh, that there that there there's a reason that this is a multidisciplinary kind of like uh, complex issues that span the realm of so many different kind of like niches of expertise. And medical training does not afford you the knowledge or expertise to. Um, opine confidently on many of those kind of like sociological types of things unfortunately <laughs> no i will say though it do, it does make part aspects of medical training a little bit disheartening because you, you you look at people that come in the hospital and a lot of times we're buffing them up you know and then discharging them to conditions that are incompatible oh yeah with, that's an everyday experience for me with substance yeah. use issues with psychiatric issues with ac various you know financial people access to care, things yeah. like that yeah it's it's horrific it does not make you feel good but your ability to you know change the world from that from from a hospital ward is uh, is limited although frustrating yeah I, you think we're gonna get much pushback from that? You think people are gonna be like, "You guys, you guys are a bunch of, a bunch of libs," just <laughs> talking about? Uh, yeah, maybe I am. I don't care. I've been called. <laughs> I've been called. I've been called worse. Bring it on. <laughs> somebody, somebody on my my latest the lower body mic'd up lifting video was like, "I I did. I finished the workout with some calf raises," and they were like, "Oh, how the mighty have fallen!" You're videoing calf raises, and I was like, <laughs> "What?" <laughs> Like if we get pushback on calf raises, though, yeah, yeah, like bro. <laughs> All Despite right. that, it, there's a high likelihood that commenter you could take their squat for a set of twenty, but you know that's fine sure. <laughs> on bench press, maybe. Yeah, in fact. Uh, okay, now to the personal section, Austin. I want you to turn out the lights. Okay. Put on some. <laughs> put on some T pain. We're getting personal. No. Um. Okay. Yeah. Let's start off with a really loaded question. Hey, uh, any regrets in training? <laughs> Yeah, this was yeah. commented on my post, and I think my answer was listening to garbage programming advice when I was getting started. Yeah, I think I think, I think, we have the same. I think yeah, I mean, I think that we know the context that we're talking about. The what you know, our introduction to the scene, mine a little bit more so than yours, was through the starting strength vein, which intensity was too high, volume was too low. You proudly, you know, issue any exercise variation as long as possible, do less uh, to recover more, like all. All of that was backwards, and I think I can point to specific uh, time periods during that time when that specific training setup precipitated uh, likely avoidable injuries, uh, tendinopathy incidents, and flare-up and things like that that um, have kind of intermittently, you know, plagued me ever since. And so there's just 
I would do all of those things opposite if I could do my kind of introductory phase of training differently. I think you had the benefit of coming through, not through that scene. And so your training did not look like that early on. Um, but that's probably the biggest thing that I would do differently is just like not do any of that when I was getting started. Yeah. I like when I got, was associated with that particular organization, I was already strong. So it's kind of like, Oh, look, this guy is like lending credibility on some level to this particular organization. I was like, yeah, but I didn't, I didn't do those programs to get here. And then when I was doing those types of programs, I did not make any progress. And like, it wasn't for a lack of trying. I was, (laughs) I was trying as hard as I could. And it wasn't until I kind of retooled things that I actually started to uh, uh, see some progress again. And actually the numbers, my numbers started to go up, but if I have two regrets in training, they are as follows. Like one, that particular period, uh, where I was hyper-specialized training far too close to failure and just, I mean, it wasn't for lack of effort, just, you know, the, the programming ideology is not compatible with actually getting real, real strong outside of like having super favorable genetics, potential other assistance and like, yeah, yeah, that, and then I also would have started training much, much earlier uh, and be involved in a variety of different sports. Now that's not obviously that wasn't available to me, but if in a perfect world, yeah, but I didn't start lifting weights till I was a senior in high school. Yeah. I, so I would have liked to start beforehand. I would have liked to play more sports. And yeah. I guess I had some of those benefits and then I started lifting a little bit earlier in high school, just along to, to get better at some of my other sports, but I'd played baseball and soccer and cross country and swam and did multiple other multiple sports as growing up. So when I was in high school, I could not bench. I remember my senior year. I was working out with a good buddy of mine, Corey Bextermuller, and he still owes me because I introduced him to his wife. Like I did that. I'm taking credit for that. And he was like a state level wrestler. So he was actually like actually strong. But every time we go to bench press as high schoolers are wont to do, I could not bench 135 pounds when I graduated high school and I weighed, I don't know, 170 or something like that. So it wasn't like I was just a little, I was yeah. smaller, but I couldn't bench 135. And so people, it's funny people are like, Oh, have you always been strong? Like, no, dude, I couldn't, yeah. I couldn't do a pull up. I couldn't do, I couldn't bench 135. I could not bench body weight. Uh, the first time I ever squatted, I fell over. Like I, I, could, I couldn't even squat. Although in my defense, I didn't know that you could squat anything less than 135 either. I thought that's, that's the minimum you have to use. But <laughs> <laughs> yeah, so those are, those are my regrets. I would have started earlier, done a wider variety of things. And then when it came to programming after my initial like experience, which I liked, I did like what I did, uh, maybe my first year, year and a half of training, um, is mostly from magazine stuff. Cause that's all yeah. that there was. I would have ideally ran into some smarter individuals and, uh, done something different, but yeah. All right, Austin, this is directly to you and I will, I will, you know, we'll adapt it to me afterwards. What is your hottest swimming take? Oh man. Um, I don't know that I have super hot takes. Uh, a couple things I think that, um, I look at from when I swam that, um, are maybe a little bit different now or, or other kind of like big picture things. So, so one is that NCAA swimming is done in what is called short course yards. So it's in 25 yard pools. The entire rest of the world swims in meters and the seasons are split between short course. So a 25 meter season and then a long course or a 50 meter season. I don't think 25 yards should exist. I think that NCAA should just not do that and get on, get with the program with the rest of the world and swim in, swim in, in, in meters. Um, that, that might be the hottest take. Um, other things there's, there's one bit, there's been a couple interesting changes since I left the sport. Um, and, and well, interesting is relative, I guess, to, to however much you care, but, um, they have, they added a couple of years after I finished, they added a little foot 
area to the starting blocks. So starting blocks used to just be a flat platform, but then they added a little thing at the back that's kind of like a track start kind of thing where you can put your foot up against it. Um, I'm not clear why that was done, uh, but uh, maybe I'm going to be a traditionalist and, and I could make up a hot take and say, yeah, that shouldn't exist. <laughs> and then other other things, they're they're making subtle rule changes um, intermittently to you know the the actual strokes, um, such that you can or can't do certain things um, in the water. Otherwise, you get disqualified. So I think like some rules around how breaststroke is done off of a wall have changed. The way you can finish in a backstroke event have changed. And so I don't know that I care too much about these things. I just think it's interesting. And, and some of these things that are likely to impact um, uh, people's performance, their times, you know, record breaking, things like that, that is, that is, that makes like kind of records a little bit more difficult to compare across time. Um, you know, like in the past people had the super suits that they used back in like the early to mid two thousands, those are banned, but a lot of those records have since been broken because people have gotten better, um, or freakier people have been selected for into the sport, I suppose. But then this thing on the starting block, does that make a difference? These subtle rule changes about like what you can and can't do in the water, is that impacting people's records and how comparable are these? But ultimately it's all made up and arbitrary. So I don't know that I feel too strongly about any of that stuff. I do think that yards should just go away and it should all be meters. <laughs> Interesting. Uh, I'm going to adapt this to myself. What is my hottest golf take? And so I don't know. I'm certain, in fact, that you are not aware of this, but the current like hot topic is rolling. They call it rolling the ball back. Effectively, they're like golfers, professional golfers are hitting the ball too damn far and effectively making mockeries of all these great courses. And the problem is that not all of these courses have additional property to lengthen their holes. That takes a lot of property, water, resources, et cetera. It's just untenable. And uh, most amateur golfers, and I would even say most the majority of professional players are against the, the proposed solution, which is to change the golfing ball, but that the professionals use compared to amateurs so that it does not go as far. Uh, most a amateurs are like, no, we want to play the same sport as the pros do. And then most pros are like, well, I, I want to hit the ball as far as possible. Like, duh. Why can't they just like drop the par numbers or something? So there are obviously a number of different solutions, right? You yeah. could, you could make the, the rough higher. You could make the narrow, the fairways narrower. You could make, uh, you know, off centered shots, more penal. You, you could do a whole number of, there's like unending potential yeah. solutions but sure. they're they're like oh we can just change the ball that's uh for in baseball for example professional baseball they use a wooden bat not an aluminum bat in tennis they use different balls on different courts and yeah. you know yeah. the viewers are none the wiser most people are against this i on the other hand am in favor i think that this is almost a non-issue because it does not materially change the sport effectively and I, and i don't think though that the pros should have their own ball i think that everybody should use the same ball we'll just all we're going to do is move the goalpost literally. It's like, look, if you right now are playing from the tips, the farthest back on the course and you're an amateur or whatever, and the ball changes and now you're not hitting it as far and you want to shoot a particular score, move up. You can just move up. Uh, professional, play this is a non-issue for them because now everybody's going to be dealing with the same ball. So it's an equal playing field. And also the advances in technology, not only of the equipment being used, but also in training for sport and this and the other, it's going to render this a, a non-issue. It's not like the people who don't hit it very far are all of a sudden going to be able to hit it just as far as the bombers. If there's yeah. still going to be an advantage to being big, strong, powerful, fast, you know, and athletic. So 
I just see it as a non-issue and people are just like, I'm not going to be able to hit the ball 300 yards. And it's like, yeah, but you're still going to be able to hit it further than everybody else. It's just the second shot's got to be different. And so, yeah, if the sport is still about rewarding individuals who are very athletic, very skilled and calculated in how they play the game, I, th- I don't know that this changes the sport at all. So just I'm in favor of it. Do it. You know, or don't. And it, the point is, though, we can't. It's an untenable situation because you cannot make the courses longer. You can't. Make I think every- I heard something like people talking about getting rid of tees. Oh, I mean, you could. <laughs> yeah. Well, so there's a limit right now on how long the tee can be. Okay. So effectively, the higher you tee up the ball with the driver, you can launch it at a more yeah. uh, favorable angle. For example, right. Right. but this all assumes a great swing, the uh-huh. correct strike. This, sure. that, and the other. You and also so, have, you actually have to be good. <laughs> that's yeah, exactly. So like, I just yeah, people are like, no, it's gonna change the sport. It's gonna ruin the sport. It's like, like okay, sports so change. Yeah, yeah, they do. As it turns out, so I heard about recently like rule changes in baseball for this season that they've changed with like a pitch clock and like where mm-hmm. you can set up your players and all sorts of other things. And it's like pretty crazy for a sport that is like having played it in the past, like as rigidly traditional as baseball is. Which golf, I'm sure, is similar. Like it's heresy to even suggest that anything change, but. It's like, yeah, things things change, man. I don't know. That's a hot take. People who listen to this are like, you guys actually care about these sports? And are like, kind of. <laughs> uh, to the extent I care about anything, sure. Sure. <laughs> All right. Second to last question. What are you currently reading? Uh, so I just finished a book called The Urge by Carl Eric Fisher. And it, I forget what the subtitle is. It's something like Our History of Addiction or something like that. So it's basically a very interesting book written by an addiction psychiatrist who also has struggled with addiction himself for a long time and has a ton of clinical experience and uh, teaching experience in this. And so he really interestingly, it is a complicated book. Um, I don't know that I would say it's like the most perfectly organized uh, uh, tome on this topic. However, he does an interesting job interweaving his own personal experience as a medical student and then as a resident and then on his way out of residency, struggling with alcohol use issues this whole time. He interweaves his own experience with these things with just a more general history of uh, addiction in humans going back centuries um, and and bringing it all the way up to the modern day. And then in the modern day, it is um, more focused on um, addiction in the United States and like drug policy and, and things like that here, because um, from what I can tell, like our approach to the problem and our policies have been kind of like the, 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 the leaders or the influences on a lot of ways that the rest of the world kind of approaches this, this issue. And so he goes kind of back and forth intermittently between his experience and what's going on at particular periods of time um, and going through, you know, all the way up to, to today and then making some, giving some thoughts and suggestions for, for how we can approach it in the future. And I found it to be excellent and would recommend um, for sure. Yeah, I'm about a third-ish maybe of the way through it right now. And uh, the only thing I would add to that is that a lot of the environmental changes, societal changes that have kind of either spun off some addiction problems. It's super interesting. So definitely uh, if you're curious at all about like uh, addiction and, and and sort of American history, 10 out of 10 would, would recommend thus far. Uh, I am also, I'm reading three books right now, which for, I think that's a PR. I'm not like, I'm going to read multiple things at the same time. Yeah. I don't do that. (laughs) Yeah. But I'm like, I'm trifurcated. So I'm reading the myth of the ethical consumer, which I'm about three quarters of the way through right now. It's very interesting. It's on consumer behaviors, 
uh, based on like what they actually do and then also what they report as, as far as how that relates to the ethical practices of the business. So where's the product made? What's the labor force look like? What's their, how green are they, for example, like all sorts of things. And like consumers report one thing, but then do another. And you're like, hmm, interesting. So from a business perspective, I thought that that's pretty fun. Uh, and then How to Change, that's by uh, Kathy Milkman. Um, and it's effectively a, I would call it more of a pop side book on like behavioral change. And so if you were like, okay, we get it, barbell medicine, behavior change is tough, but like what do a pretty decent practical like solutions and with a light treating of the evidence, but I would, I would lump this in an airport kind of book sort of thing. And that's no offense to her. I, she was writing it to a general audience and not necessarily like, it's not a textbook. So. It's been a pretty easy read so far, and I I, th- I like it so far. Uh, okay, last question here on episode 220 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast with Dr. Austin Baraki. What do y'all nerd out on that you don't publicly display? All right, so I think, I think what we should do here is I should guess yours, you should guess mine, <laughs> and then we can share. What do you say? Uh, okay. <laughs> My... My guess as to what you nerd out on but don't really publicly talk about is going to be American history or maybe just history in general. Mm, what do you think? Yeah, I mean, I think that I do read a fair amount or I'm interested in history in general, not just American. Um, and a lot of it is the rest of the world. Um, I think it's hard to top the amount of nerding out that I do on medical stuff. <laughs> and, I don't, sure. and I don't post most of that because our audience is not interested in yeah, yeah. the details of, uh, you know, cardiorenal syndrome and stuff like that. That's by far where I nerd out the most. And then I translate that into my work and teaching and things like that. But I also just enjoy being able to understand and communicate things to my, to my learners. So that's where I nerd out the most outside of medicine. Then yeah, it's probably, uh, it's probably history, um, in terms of podcasts or books or, or other kind of, um, stories like that. Yeah. All right. I'm going to give myself a half a point. If the scale yeah. is zero to one, I'm giving myself a half <laughs> on that. All right. Do you have any guesses? I mean, I, I know a variety of the hobbies that you have uh, kind of gotten into in the past several years, um, I suppose. And so I feel like it's maybe in, in that realm. So you've, you've gotten into more niche, like business related things. You've gotten into photography. You've gotten into like cooking and smoking. You've gotten into- To be clear, uh, smoking like, foods, not smoking. <laughs> yeah, smoking foods. <laughs> Uh, like it, audio, video production, you know, create creative things like that. So maybe like generally in like the creative kind of artistic side of things that you have uh, gotten yeah. more into. I so yes, I would give you full full marks for that response. I think people see the they see YouTube, they they hear the podcast, they see Instagram or whatever. Uh, but what I don't talk about is like not only the gear, like just, Oh, how many cameras and the light the setup. Yeah, they don't whatever. know what goes into all of that, but like formal training in like how to properly expose a shot or how to set up a scene, how to record audio, how to do all like your boy is gone deep on this to the point of annoyance of the most friendly person that we have on staff, which is Tom Capitelli. Like just, I will send him text messages. I'm like, Hey, did you know this particular lens does this at this, at this aperture and this F stop and whatever. And he's like, why, why are you telling me this? And I'm like, I don't know. I just wanted to share. Uh, so yeah, that is, I do not, I mean, cause no one cares, right? Like even photography nerds, 
or audio, you know, cinematography. They're past the point of caring about that stuff. You mean? Yeah, I think I think it's so like the what is that that uh, it's like the Dunning Kruger like curve, so to speak. It's like like they have gone so far that they just don't care about the gear anymore. They care about the muse. And I'm still like on that trajectory. I'm like, yeah. uh, I need to get, get over there one day. <laughs> yeah, maybe. Yeah, or or not. <laughs> yeah, or not. Cool. Uh, all right. Well, so this has been episode 220 of the Barbell Medicine Podcast. Doctor Baraki and I have answered your questions from the internet. If you want to submit questions to us in the future, make sure you follow Austin and myself on Instagram. That's usually when we post up these prompts. Uh, before you guys go anywhere, please uh, pay a visit to our sponsors. We really appreciate them uh, coming on, helping support our podcast. We can keep bringing you all the latest nuance and health and fitness for free on the Eat Barbell Medicine podcast. Also, leave us a five-star rating and a review. It really helps drive traffic to our podcast. And we'll see you next week and every week right here on the Barbell Medicine podcast. Parker, our purpose is simple. We want to make the world a better place. By working more efficiently, by using more sustainable practices, by developing better technologies, we keep moving forward. With each new idea, innovation, and partnership, we're one step closer to fulfilling our purpose every single day. To find out more, visit parker.com purpose. Parker, engineering your success. Say goodbye to your credit card rewards. Greedy corporate mega stores, led by Walmart and Target are pushing for a law in Congress to take away your hard-earned cash back and travel points to line their pockets. The Durbin Marshall credit card bill would enact harmful credit card routing mandates that would end credit card rewards as we know it. If you love your credit card rewards, tell your lawmakers, hands off my rewards. Tell them to oppose the Durbin Marshall credit card bill.